everyone knows what spending money is and investing money is. We all know the difference, right, between those two. Someone said, are you thinking about spending time or investing time? That one was powerful because it's like, am I investing time right now or am I just spending time right now? Welcome to Invest for the Win, where we discuss strategies to win at the game of private investing. Whether you're a novice or a seasoned investor, tune in to hear experts break down complex topics and reveal emerging trends in private investing. Head over to investforthewin.com to find links to these episodes and additional content. Position yourself to invest for the win. Hosted by the founders of FTW Investments, Logan Freeman, Corey Tuck, and Parker Webb. On today's episode, we have David Youngblood, who brings a unique perspective to the real estate world from his background in finance and CPG companies and turning businesses around, growing businesses, and now is the CFO at Strategic Acquisitions Group. And there's some really great nuggets in today's episode in regards to the three-step process of dealing with mistakes, um, the success formula that we dive into. I think you're going to grab some awesome mental models, some great nuggets out of today's episode, but also hear from somebody who's been in business for a long time, brings a lot of acumen uh, to the space and a different perspective. So tune in, enjoy the show. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Invest for the Win show. And on today's episode, we have David Youngblood of Strategic Acquisitions Group. And if you hear us call it SAG, S-A-G, we're referring back to Strategic Acquisitions Group. And we're talking about investing for the long haul, commercial real estate investing outside of just multifamily and operations. We, you know, we're talking right before we got on the, the recording here about um, one of our, both of our favorite shows is uh, Marcus Lemonis's The Profit, where he goes in and turns businesses around. Something that's very interesting to me. If I'm watching TV, I, I try to, you know, tend to learn as well. And, and we've got a, a real life uh, Marcus Lemonis type of individual here on the show today, which is exciting. So David is a chief financial officer and he joined SAG SAG in 2020. And before SAG, David was a CFO of Dalen Products, a CPG company from 2018 to 2019. Previous to that, he spent a decade and was the CEO of Acvim International, which is formerly Basic Resources, where he led its expansion into new markets in North America, South America, and Asia. And before that, he held several finance roles at ARC Automotive, a leading airbag inflator manufacturer. Hey, David, you know that's a, a good bio, and it's interesting to have someone of your background and experience on the show today. And so I want to give you the opportunity, to you this, the stage here, just kind of talk through some of your experience and, and how you got involved um, in this industry, but also very interested in, in learning more about your previous roles and that knowledge base and experience, how it's kind of transitioned into the to real estate space. So go ahead and take us back to that point um, of your background. Sure. Uh, I think it'd be helpful for me to kind of go through the pathway that got me here and that'll, uh, that'll pick up some of the items of uh, what why I was where I was and what I learned along the way. So I, I started off with a traditional finance accounting type background and held some roles in that space. Like you said, the ARC Automotive really had the opportunity, uh, several opportunities that were just awesome there just by raising my hand. We started up a facility in Mexico. I got to participate in that. We started up a facility in China, got to go participate in that process and spend a lot of time in China. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and through that was learning and growing and honestly moving up very rapidly in that organization, which was a big organization yeah. and part of a public company. But right about the time that was happening, uh, a, a really good friend of mine uh, recruited me hard to come and run what at that time was a family business. Um, and uh, he offered me uh, a big pay cut, but he also offered me equity uh, and the mm. opportunity to run a business and take off the finance hat for a little while, get into operations, get into sales, get into dealing with those things. And it was great. And, a, you know, an opportunity I couldn't refuse. Uh, and in the long term, it worked out great. Uh, I was able to help grow that company over a period of 10 years, was able to sell it, uh, made, made the owners a lot of money, um, grew a team from about four people to about 50 people, uh, grew the revenue and, and did all that. It was just great experience. Yeah. Made a lot of mistakes, certainly, but uh, learned a lot about operations and uh, how the business world works and then got a, a taste of how private equity works and investing through that process as well. Um, and then after I'd been with the private equity company for a while, I said, okay, I can had a pause there and uh, left um, and then got back into the finance world, spent some time at Dalen, like you mentioned, learned the CPG world, uh, got mm-hmm. to interact directly with Walmart, Costco, Lowe's, some of the big players, which was very uh, eye-opening and, a good, again, good experience. And then the way I ended up at SAG is just I'd been dealing with banks and different people, and uh, the owners of SAG were looking for a CFO. It was an off-market search, but uh, reputationally what I'd done, and particularly in East Tennessee helped, and I got connected with them. And Just the owners at, at SAG are two really great guys, uh, high integrity, high transparency, um, and as I moved along in my career, those two things became eminently important. They're probably things that you take for granted if you don't have them. Uh, if you do have them, pardon me, but when you don't, uh, it's, it's rough. So through, uh, you know, who I knew and my networking and those things, I was able to land this job and uh, got a nice baptism by fire. I joined the company in January of 2020. We had a big commercial real estate portfolio and in March of 2020, we were all of a sudden dealing with COVID and that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a, to be honest, it was a great opportunity to learn the portfolio because we had to individually negotiate with uh, well over 100 tenants on, uh, uh, you know, working things out. And we did it very proactively and we did a good job. And then, of course, uh, the government took a giant bazooka of cash and shot it at everyone. And uh, people tend sure. to be okay after that. But it was still a great experience. So that's that's kind of the pathway I've been on and what the how it's helped at SAG specifically is our owners are very value investing oriented. So they look at long-term cash flows and my background of looking at operating businesses, um, you know, real estate, you get, you get mired in what's the cap rate, what's this, what's my IRR if I flip it in five years and do this and that. But in reality, the long-term approach of investing is just buying future cash flows. Mm. Um, You know, that's, that approach and the way I do that really was attractive to these owners. And also they wanted to expand SAG's horizons into investing in operating companies and not just real estate. They just expand the uh, universe for investments because, uh, you know, as you know, and are well aware of real estate's challenging. I mean, it's hard to find good investments, especially if you're a long-term buyer. It's sometimes it's hard to make the mathematics work without assuming a flip. Um, And so, (laughs) The owners said, well, let's look at investing in operating businesses as well. And that's, that's part of the reason I'm at SAG. 
Yeah. Well, thank you for giving us the background. I mean, the interesting part of, of um, you know, real estate and, and private equity is there are so many folks that I am seeing, myself included, right? I'm seven, eight years into this thing. But, um, you know, there are so many now educational resources that are at people's fingertips that they then feel um, a, in my opinion, false sense of confidence to be able to go operate real estate, which is a business. And so there's a lot of interesting kind of conversations I have with doctors groups or attorneys or IT professionals who are really, really good at what they do. They're specialists, they're experts in that one field that have very little necessarily business acumen to see the whole picture and actually put everything together. And so I'm, I'm thinking about the owners of SAG, right? And, and their search, trying to find somebody that is looking at a longer term horizon, but also has that business acumen of, of all of those different hats, finance, operations, sales and marketing. I just got out of a two and a half hour executive meeting with our executive team. And we're talking about this exact thing. We're a younger company. And so we have some older individuals on our executive team. But one thing that we're always trying to solve for is just the time in the business and the business acumen um, that experience brings. And I think that those owners um, at SAG uh, definitely saw that in you and said, you know what, we can teach them real estate, you know, but we it's very difficult to teach somebody the, the knowledge and experience that you were able to bring from all of those, um, all those previous roles and just the time that you have spent in business in general. And, and so I get rubbed a little bit because I see folks that have a big power base and they can come in with a lot of capital and all these things and everything they touch is going to turn to gold, right? And well, maybe if you got involved in the last 10 years, you're sitting in a good position, but the real operators, the folks that can do the force majeure a hundred, a hundred times over with tenants and still have a operating portfolio, that's enterprise value. And that's value that's delivered to investors. And that's what gets me excited to continue to try to learn and implement in our business. So I just appreciate you sharing that, but I do think it's lost in our industry. And I try to, you know, educate and post about that stuff. Everything that you see on LinkedIn or or Instagram or Facebook, you know, that's just people's wins. That's just, hey, I closed on a deal. But you very rarely see, hey, I'm working through a really tough scenario on this, this, op, this project. And it's, it's caused a lot of, of angst, you know, within our company. So anyways, I just think that, uh, that more of that needs to come out. I'm sure you have a lot of, of those war stories to be able to bring to your guys' um, you know, portfolio. So if you could, now, maybe just talk a little bit about the real estate side at SAG and kind of what the investment thesis has been um, up to this point. And um, you mentioned growth into, you know, operating businesses and other, maybe other geographic locations, but really curious to hear, you know, kind of the, you know, the trajectory of SAG and what you guys have done right, you know, up to this point and what you're looking to accomplish. Sure. So, I mean, uh, it's, what I tell people, like you said, about people bragging in real estate, it's actually difficult to lose money in real estate. Uh, there's really, I think I heard someone say something very wise. There's two ways to lose money in real estate. Number one is you got to buy really, really, really bad. Like yeah. not just kind of bad, because time is on your side with real estate always. You got to buy really, really, really bad or a forced liquidity event. 
Um, mm. You have to sell when you don't necessarily want to, right? Those are the two main ways to lose money in real estate. So to your point, people bragging about, um, you know, hey, look what we did on this deal or this or that. I mean, or saying, hey, here's our IR offer. <clears throat> you know, for us, the beginning of our investment thesis is really just cash on cash returns. So it's yeah. what cash came into our pocket, what cash did we come out of pockets, pockets specifically. Not a spreadsheet, not a percentage, just cash on cash. And of course, you have to discount future cash flows, right? So, I mean, that, that's that's the beginning of the thesis, which I would call value investing. Um, you know, it's it's one of the main reasons that as interest rates go up, assets have to have less value because you're applying a heavier discount. I mean, that, that's right. the concept people should understand. Like the stock market is inherently worth less. Um, but yeah, so the beginning of our thesis is, is simply anything that we look at, we underwrite the cash flows and we don't ever trust, you know, well, NOI is this percentage or this or that, or, you know, because it's weird in our world. You can say it's recoverable, maybe it's not. You know, maybe there's some special lease language. You know, so the, the first part is we look at the investment um, in general and we say, okay, are we even in the ballpark of reality on what the seller is, uh, is looking for this? And then we'll dive deep in diligence. Um, and a lot of people do this and say this. I think where we dive deeper than anyone else, is we really, really hardcore underwrite tenants quality. Mm. So when we bring on tenants, we're very uh, careful about how we do it. We essentially look at our leases as a loan. So we underwrite even similarly the way a bank would. And that's to our benefit. You know, we we negotiated with 120 ter- tenants during COVID. We had zero defaults, zero. And we extended about 15% of our portfolio during COVID. Um, but the reason was the quality of our tenants. We had done work yep. uh, on the front end and done that. So for us, when we look at any uh, investment, we're going to look at, you know, the, the, the tenant quality. What are the real cash flows over the long haul? And is this an asset we can hold for 10, 20 years and, and be happy with? I, what I say about our portfolio is every asset in our portfolio is like a house that you and your wife and kids love living in. Okay. So someone knocks on your door and says, uh, I'll give you 10% more than your house is worth on Zillow or whatever metric, you're going to say no, right? Because uh, you don't want to make your wife and kids mad. But if someone knocks on your door and says, I'll give you double what houses are selling for in the neighborhood, you're probably going to have a conversation with the family. Mm-hmm. Hey, guys. So that, that's the way we look at our portfolio is we don't, I yeah. think it's a Warren Buffett quote, we don't play gin rummy. We don't switch stuff back and forth. We, we're happy to, uh, but it's part of that is the nature of our owners. They're both high net worth individuals. They've made a lot of sure. money. They want to make more money, but they're they're looking to deploy capital, not necessarily uh, flips. I mean, it's again, it's it's really just underwriting cash flows and then discounting it properly. You know, cap rate is a proxy for that, of course. So we look at cap rates, but that, that often does not tell the whole story, uh, especially when it's more of an operating asset and there's a lot of uh, thorniness in that, and and there's some frictionality when you flip stuff. People look at the big number in the IRR, but you have to understand. There's a lot, real estate is fee heavy um, mm-hmm. on the buying and selling. And uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot that goes into that that just claws away your return. Yeah. And there's something to be said about not looking to generate returns from a, you know, a, a capital event. And, um, and I think that your owners understand that and you guys definitely understand that from a, you know, from a asset type standpoint, can you talk to us just a little bit about the the types of assets that you have in the portfolio and, and maybe, you know, what, what's exciting for you in regards to, you know, going into 2023 here. Sure. I mean, I think that 
the, the majority of our portfolio is retail centers. Okay. So we, we have some office, we have some medical, but in reality, yeah. the majority of what we hold is retail centers. Uh, and so um, for us, and we talked a little bit before the call started about multifamily and uh, multifamily is just so crowded. I mean, there was a sub four cap rate multifamily that sold like a couple months ago. It's just a, that, that seemed crazy to me, but it's just mm-hmm. so crowded that uh, it may be a growing space, but there's a lot of capacity coming online. And there's a lot of money competing, which is going to drive cap rates downward. So for us, we're, we're agnostic on the, the, the type. Um, we know retail really well, and we've operated it both as asset manager, and now we even have our own property management company as well. So we know that sector, which means uh, we're probably willing to take more risk just because we're more confident in our knowledge. But we look at office. We look at other things like that. But the, the retail segment for us in particular is interesting just because, um, you know, what the narrative during COVID was that COVID accelerated uh, online buying uh, even more. And, uh, you know, the, the chart was redrawn to say, here's, here was the trend and here's the new trend during COVID. What's happened recently is we've actually returned to the pre-COVID trend. So mm-hmm. in-person retail grew enough to where all of those gains on trend from COVID were erased. And, and because no new retail is being built, like there's not really capacity coming online for us and no people aren't as excited about it. I mean, I think maybe you posted something about people need to get more excited about it. And I think I commented and said, well, we're okay. If they don't, you know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> uh, people aren't competing for the, this asset class because for us, a, a good center with really good tenants that are profitable and, you know, able to navigate these waters. Uh, and you're even seeing pure online people, do something that I didn't know that people would predict. They're opening in-person stores, right? Uh, they, they said, hey, we can't do it with just online. We just can't, we're not capable. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and I think the, the returns process and the handling stuff is, is a lot more expensive than people thought. You know, when, when Amazon could charge whatever they wanted, um, you know, and uh, they were king, it, it was an easier business. But in reality, those types of businesses are tough and you still need that in-person location. So for us, we're, we're still excited about that space. Um, you know, we don't want to have confirmation bias just because we know it and we like it doesn't mean it's good, but we, we do understand there's less competition in that area. And, and we really like industrial too. I think industrial warehouse uh, is going to be big um, because of just the onshoring of manufacturing and mm-hmm. some of the permanent shifts in supply chain that are just, they're, they're absolutely happening. I mean, you look at what's going on in China. I mean, a lot of companies are moving to other countries like Apple's moving. They just announced they're moving a bunch of production to Vietnam, but there's also a lot of onshoring of manufacturing and production and the automation that's coming along uh, with that is going to enable people to do that. So we just in general, we, we don't, I mean, we're, we think that we're very, if you read my post on LinkedIn, it would look like I'm very pessimistic um, about the economy, which I guess I kind of am because we're, we're heading into recession, but sure. in general, the U S economy, I'm super bullish on. Mm-hmm. I think as a country, we're positioned better than any other country. And so that's going to drive some growth. And so, you know, for us, yeah. We're okay with an asset underperforming in year one and two because if we're going to hold it for a very long time, then uh, you know we'll, we'll make up the difference. Yeah, you know I think that um, I was I was kind of mentored by an individual and and he said Logan the the three kind of aspects of a really sophisticated <laughs> and successful investor they never lose sight of diversification and you can diversify in many different ways um, asset types real estate. Other, other opportunities, but diversification, uh, seeking intrinsic value, which you what is exactly what you've talked about, and then also 
um, you know, thinking long-term. And I think that those three things, and I have these conversations with investors, we have a little bit of a different um, business structure because it's not all of our capital. We're raising capital to, to put into deals and whatnot. So, but, but when I talk to investors and say, look, this is, you know, three to 10 years that we're thinking out here, three on the minimum, and I'd like to get that to five at a minimum because, you know, I think somebody on LinkedIn always says something along the lines of don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait, but it, you need to buy the right stuff. Right. And uh, it kind of goes back to that Chinese proverb of when was the best time to plant a tree? Well, it was 10 years ago. The next best time is today. Right. And so um, as I think about our portfolio and our, our you know, new acquisitions that we're focused on, you know, really, I go back to location, 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 so many different times, like you cannot replace a, a location. And so, you know, when you get into industrial and retail, that is, it plays a very big point because it's hard to navigate different geographic locations on the retail industrial side if you don't have a competitive advantage or you don't know what's happening in those cities and, and municipalities. Multifamily, you, there's so many different markers that you can kind of look at and say, okay, well, there's this amount of supply and that, but you know, this could be the path of progress. But I really feel like people, and especially evaluating our early portfolio, I, I, I can tell you there's many assets in areas we would not go purchase now because it's not something that we're interested in holding for a very long period of time. And so um, those three, those three tenants of, you know, a, a sophisticated or a really successful investor, I think people lose track of because there's the big IRRs that are always, you know, shown to individuals. And I can tell you that, you know, 50 different deals have hit my inbox the last six months that show 8% preferred return and 15% IRR. And whether that be a, a, a neighborhood retail center in Kansas City or a multifamily property in Atlanta, Georgia. What's different? Well, it's the operators, it's the location, and um, you know, it's it's the business plan, the, the capital structure that's so important. So I'm hoping through these types of conversations that investors start to hear those and and don't just listen to the podcast of oh buy something, it's going to be great, and we're going to post this massive um, IRR in 12 or 24 months. That that game is gone, um, in my opinion, and we never really tried to play that game. It's like flipping apartments or flipping commercial real estate. You have tax you know, situations that you have to deal with. You have, you have to go find something else, hopefully to, to purchase. And, and there's, not the, the, there's not that many awesome new opportunities to. So why would you trade out unless somebody came and said, okay, I'm gonna pay you double what you pay for. Okay, fine. But that's also with the liquidity crunch that we've had the last you know, four to six months. That's happening less and less now. So, yeah, location, lo yeah. location is more important now because we're going kind of to a great sort where, um, you know, it used to be to your point uh, up until I guess a year or two ago, anything in real estate, yep, buy it, get your return. That's fine. I know that nationally, here's the average. We're seeing that the, the, the spread in different geographies on returns and upside is, in our opinion, again, our opinion. We're not the smartest ever, but we feel like we're smarter than the average pair. Um, the spread among geographies is widening. And to your mm -hmm. point, you look at two deals, same same prep rate, same IRR, you have to look at the geography. You have to look at the operator. And even more so, we were looking, you know, and we, we, we're, we're fine with the structure of where we're, you know, the LPGP structure, mm -hmm. whatever people call it. We like doing that. We like partnering with people because 
we get to do more deals and we get to learn sure really good operators right but we were talking to one and they said their philosophy is they will not buy something that's not like within three hours of where they live because they want mm-hmm. to be able to go and look and touch and feel and interact you know talk to the municipality all those things and it's those little things that yeah on uh, one of my favorite quotes is i've never seen a deal fail in an excel spreadsheet right that spreadsheet's gonna look great um the, the the accountant's going to do their magic to make sure that the returns look exactly like you want them to. Um, right. It, both the location and you add one to that, the operator uh, and, and how they're doing is just so critically important. Um, you know, and for us, it makes it harder for new people. We just, you know, what's the track record? You know, what have you done? Yeah. Show us what you've done. Show us what's happening in that particular location. But it used to be literally people would look, uh, what's the, What's the RR? What's the prep rate? Whatever the numbers are, I don't care where it is because I know they're going to hit that or beat it. Um, but I, you can't count on that anymore. Uh, you, you're going to have to do a little more diligent underwriting. But that being said, it's good because not everyone does that, and therefore you can pick and choose the deal you want, and you're you're getting the same return at a lower risk, right? Than maybe someone else is. Yeah, absolutely. We talk a lot about the competitive advantage, and we have a very similar kind of method. If we're not able to get to that asset in a specific time period, it's very difficult for us to, to feel comfortable about it. Um, you know, 95% of our holdings are in, you know, Missouri and in Kansas, you know, and that's where we live. Um, we have a few outside because of, you know, Lincoln, Nebraska or Des Moines, Iowa feeling very similar to Kansas City, and I can get to each of those in three hours. Um, you know, so there's, I, I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's something there to be said about that. I've always had a hard time understanding how you know, unless you're just a, you know, a, a big company that's just allocating uh, capital, uh, how to really uh, manage effectively throughout that period of time. I know how hard it is to manage effectively with assets that are, I can literally see from my window in my office building that we we own right there, how difficult it is. So um, very well said there. I did want to ask you a question about, you know, so you've had a lot of different experience from you know, on the finance side, but also just business acumen in general. But how is it different working in a real estate focused company, if if at all? You know, I'm just curious to, to hear you've been in CPG companies. Now you're in real estate. Like what was was there a learning curve on the real estate side? Any differences that kind of stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, there, there certainly was a learning curve. Uh, fortunately, we have again, we have some really good owners and we have a, our vice president portfolio manager has a lot of experience. He's a very smart guy. And during COVID, we were kind of joined at the hip. We sent everyone mm-hmm. else home out of our office. We were the only ones coming in. And so getting that experience and, and having the, the, you know, the bandwidth. But I, I mean, I think that the principles of real estate are not complex, um, but to do them is not always easy. There's a difference mm-hmm. between um, complexity and difficulty. So you have to do some difficult things like rejecting a tenant, um, like um, saying no to an investment. And so um, the the biggest challenge for SAG is just the, the number and diversity of our portfolio. So we own slash manage uh, about 50 assets, all of which have different ownership uh, groups. So it, that was complex, um, but we've, we've got a good system. We've got a handle on that. I would say that um, you know, it's, it's just figuring out what the economic engine is, whether it's an operating company, whether it's real estate, whether mm-hmm. it's uh, buying a T-bill, it's what is producing cash flow, right? What's the machine producing cash flow? And is that machine functioning? And what are the major things 
they're going to inhibit that cash flow. And are you ready for that? Are you prepared for that? So it's, it's always about that economic engine and, and even underwriting a tenant, right? We'll, we'll apply that same logic. It's like, okay, you're saying that you're going to do this. What is your economic engine? And can you, can you pay this? You know, can you pay rent? Can you pay can? Um, you know, and, and how much money are you going to have left over? You got to make money. Yeah. And so we've, We've worked with people on their business plan. You know, we, we told people, listen, this is not a good business plan. Don't do this. I know they told me a story. There was a tenant who was going to, I think, cash in his 401k and start a business. They were like, do not do that. You know, don't do mm-hmm. it. Um, and, and so I think that there's some core principles, but people don't want to do that level of work. You know, they, yeah. they, want, they, they want a pretty spreadsheet with a good IRR and they want to say these are all good tenants, but they're not. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so I, I think that the, the good thing about SAG is that we're, we're we're relatively conservative. So at no point were we stressed, um, you know, uh, financially during COVID. We knew that regardless of what happened, we could weather the storm barring, you know, zombie apocalypse or something like that. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we knew we could weather the storm and that helped a lot. And back to the transparency and integrity of our owners is that we developed a system where we're completely open and honest. And if I was allowed to make mistakes and I did make mistakes and, you know, we have a very simple three-step process for mistakes is number one, you make a mistake, you own it. Do not point fingers, do not make excuses, just own that mistake. Number two, don't make the same mistake twice. Don't fall in the same hole twice. And number three, tell someone else about it. So they don't do it. Um, and so that environment specifically helped me accelerate the learning process. And that's the kind of environment we want to create, right? That we encourage people to be really open. And if they, if they mess up, they mess up. Uh, as long as it's not something fatal, Right. Um, and that the two things about owning it. Right. And also telling someone else, it gets to where just the stigma is kind of removed. Right. It's like, OK, you, you messed up. Um, move on. Uh, you know what? What I tell our team is there's only one surefire way to avoid mistakes, and that's not doing things. There's some people out there that aren't making mistakes. They're also not doing mistakes. And, well, and- I'm just taking notes on the three step <laughs> process of of owning or dealing with mistakes because I love little mental models. I love little processes like that. I'm going to share that with my team. Own it. So reminds me of Jocko Willink's extreme ownership. Take ownership of it. Don't fall into the same hole twice and tell somebody about it. I mean, that is just so simple, Um, but, you know, not easy to do. But very simple if that's the and You have to have a culture of radical transparency of what Dalio would say you know, open transparency and honesty, but you have to be able to not be chastised or whatever for, for a mistake. You know, I think that, um, you know, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And uh, that was, that's a little magnet on my fridge that my little sister gave me. And it's still there today. And my wife, I think hates some of my little cheesy sayings that I have posted on my office wall and everywhere else. But those, those are things that are, are used on a regular basis. And now I can use the three-step process of of mistakes. I think that's a great culture builder as well, because we don't know everything. Nobody's perfect and nobody's going to be the next perfect uh, individual out there. So it's how you respond after you make a decision that maybe didn't pan out that you can, you can really succeed in. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Sure. So I'm guessing just one kind of dialing down into the types of assets that SAC has acquired. If you are being able to underwrite these tenants at a very deep level, that is going to dictate the type of asset that you can also um, go after, right? I mean, I have, we have purchased uh, retail shopping centers. Um, we have about four in the, in the portfolio and then another 
um, industrial property. And it's not always easy to get financials and underwrite those tenants. So can you talk to me just about scenarios that, and I know folks that if, if a tenant's not willing to do that, then they walk away from the deal uh, because they might be hiding something. But I'm also a broker and um, I've brokered a lot of those retail centers and had that same conversation. But if if SAG is going up to a, an acquisition and maybe there's three tenants in a building or something, and one of them isn't willing to share financials and you can't underwrite them, what do you do in that scenario? Sure, it's a good question. I mean, I think that any investment, you're putting capital at risk. So we have to remember that first of all, right? If you don't want to put capital at risk, buy T-bills. I mean, hey, uh, like I yeah. said, that's sub four <laughs> cap rate. There's some T-bills paying above four. So you can always do that if you don't want to put your money at risk. So I think we would look at it, um, you know, as it, it would just it would just add risk to the investment. It wouldn't be something sure. we would necessarily walk away from. We'd really want to know what the tenant's options were, um, because if they're a bad tenant, but they have no options, and we have the ability to lease that space to a better tenant, again, because in the short term, that'd be painful. There may be some vacancy, there's some TI, sure. commission, whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, because we looked at one deal, and there was a tenant in there, and there, there was an okay tenant, but they had 10 two-year options. And we were like, there is no way we're doing this. This is, this right. is awful. Like, why did they agree to this? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that um, you can't make people do it. And we've had to take on some lease language that we don't like. like we have our own standard lease that we use. Um, and it's, it's, it's fair and transparent, but it's, it's landlord friendly. It's our lease. Mm -hmm. um, sure. in, in reality, we recently have a new red flag that if a tenant does not mark up our lease, because most tenants will, unless they're huge, big box or big, national brand that will have their own, but most tenants will use our lease as a starting point. We've said now, if they don't come back with something, that's a red flag. So why didn't mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I think that we, the approach specifically on your question is, uh, you know, um, we would underwrite as much as we could. Um, and if we can get to a comfort zone, it might impact what we were willing to pay. We'd look at the lease structure too, to say, okay, is there an opportunity? Sure. Like if this lease runs out in two years and they don't have any options, then we can go to them and say, yeah, you, if you want to extend, now you have to provide us the stuff because we have the ability to get it. So we would, we're going to be reasonable. Of course, we'd rather have it. We understand that in some cases you're, and also how long have they been there? Are they good paying? I mean, there's some things that the seller can tell you. And if they've been there for 15 years and they've always paid their bills on time, uh, you know, that, that is evidence in and of itself. Maybe they don't want to share their financials, but I would say, okay, good. You know, you, maybe you don't need to. Um, we really like to at least get revenue if possible, just because it shows us trends. I mean, yeah, if we get to the very end of a negotiation with a new tenant, they're like, we're not going to send you annual financials, but can you at least send us revenue? So at least we can mm -hmm. proactively see how you're doing, right? I mean, that's right. something, right? Um, and so we'll, we'll compromise. We prefer not to, but I mean, uh, you know, you, you have to in life and we understand that. And it depends on the tenant, you know, if they're, yeah. because if, I mean, some tenants are a public company, so you can just underwrite the company. You, know, you don't need the individual stuff. That's so right. Yeah. It, it, it depends. But I mean, it, We've had more success with it because we've rejected tenants that won't provide that stuff. Um, we just reject them. And to be honest, in some cases, uh, they come back. So, um, yeah, you and it, it surprise yourself when you, you hold the ground. I mean, it's, uh, and we don't bluff. 100%. We don't, so philosophically, if we say it's this or not, we don't, we don't do ultimatums. We don't bluff, right? Uh, we'll, we'll have an open negotiation and discussion. Here's what we'd like. Here's what we wouldn't. And you get to a point where you say, if you can't do this, then we can't do it. Either. And yeah. You know, no hard feelings. Like, you feel like, oh, that's not in the market. No one else is doing that. I'm like, I, I get it. That's fine. I'm, you know, it's it's okay. Uh, you know, it, we don't have to do it the way other people are doing it. And they don't have to do it the way we're doing it. So we don't get emotional or upset about it. We just say, this is our process. And to be honest, it's worked very well for us. So we're, we're going to keep doing it. I like it. And I also 
like the terminology, what's the economic engine behind what's driving the activity with their business operations. Prime example, I drive by a shopping center, three tenants, uh, sorry, four tenant building, and it's a great location right on State Line Road, has a uh, Starbucks and a Chipotle in it on the end caps. And the two middle spaces have been everything that you can think of, you know, rolled ice cream company, CBD, um, you name it, it's been there, you know, and they have tried to do everything they can to, to get, you know, tenants in that in that building. But yeah, I think that the that's a prime example of, of saying, we want you to be successful in your business. And so if, if, it, if this isn't the right fit also, you know, you can go find a better location that, that would serve your business. Um, and so taking that approach with the tenant specifically, I think is an open and honest, transparent, you know, conversation to have. And I imagine those, those owners are just saying, well, maybe we just have a center that's going to be 50% occupied, but it is with Starbucks and Chipotle. So the other two yeah. are just gravy on top of that. So cool. you got to take that into account too. Yeah. And the, uh, bringing up the transparency and the interactiveness, that's the other important thing. So we can have a bad tenant, but if they're communicating with us and they're very transparent, we will work with them. Yeah. Right? We absolutely 100% of the time will. But if they're paying late, not answering our emails, not returning calls, mm-hmm. it really gets hard to work with people. And we tell yeah. people that. Um, you know, we say, listen, I, we get it, um, you know, and it's, it's one of the reasons we absorbed uh, some property management as it will get us closer to our tenants. We can interact with them more proactively, but we try to tell people, and even during COVID, we kind of had some inside knowledge. Our owners are very well connected. We knew COVID was going to be bad in March. Okay. We sent tenants letters in March of 2020. And we said, Hey, you're going to be asking us for relief. And when you do, here's what we're going to need. Uh, and we were very proactive. Uh, yeah. with that and so but we will work with tenants like we get it you may have a short-term issue but we're going to ask for stuff because we want to confirm this is a short-term issue or we're going to work on getting you out of here because you don't want to dig the hole deeper um you know and so we um it, it's 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 one of those things where i think you have to figure out that that's the advice i'd give someone anyone dealing with a landlord is listen do not go into a shell do not stop communicating um because they typically they're, they're, they don't want to have tenant turnover most landlords don't Okay, um, but if you push them hard enough and don't communicate, they're 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 going to live with uh, tenant turnover. That's right. Yeah. Well, before we get into predictions, I did want to ask one more question about just business in general because I've I've got somebody here that's been in business for a long time, seen a lot of different things. Any top, and I'm you know selfishly working on growing our firm and and had to transition from you know, kind of a producer role to a leader role and think more strategically and lead teams of, of people. But, you know, do you have any top takeaways just in regards to what you've learned about being successful in business in general? That could be a methodology like EOS or something that you're implementing in your business that has been a just kind of added rocket fuel to your business or, um, you know, you've always brought from one business to the next and say, we've got to do this and implement this because it's being successful? Sure, that's a great question. Paul. I'll talk about a couple of things. Number one, I, I speak at the University of Tennessee on a pretty regular basis, a couple of times a year. And students will always ask me, what do you wish you had done more of um, you know, early on in your career? And I've had a really, I've had a lot of fortunate interactions with people. I always tell people there's two main things just in general advice I give people is read a lot. There's a lot of good knowledge. Mm. You mentioned Ray Dalio, he's a really good book, Principles, really good. Um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of good books out there and network, interact with smart people. Um, and, and one thing I've heard recently was in any interaction, assume that you're dumber than the other person. 
Mm. And boy, it really opens your mind that you're going to learn and absorb, right? Um, it's one of the reasons I interact with you because I learned stuff from you. So, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's a good thing. But it, specifically for business, what I've taken everywhere is there was a book and I can't, I should remember the book, but I can't. It was a, an equation that basically said success of any project equals the quality of the idea times the quality of buy-in from your team. Mm. And I really like that methodology because what happens is someone goes into their room, their strategic room, away from everyone involved in the project, and they come up with a 10 out of 10 idea, right? This is a 10 out of 10 idea. It's awesome. It's the best idea ever. And they go out to their team, the team that they've never talked to, never asked for advice or input. And they say, I've got this 10 out of 10 idea. Let's go do it. You've got to be as excited as I am about this. And they get a one out of 10 buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. So one times 10 is 10. But if instead they had gone to their team, interacted, asked questions, really genuinely ask questions of here's the problem, what do you think? And let's say they get a seven out of 10 idea, but a 10 out of 10 buy-in. That seven out of 10 with a 10 out of 10 buy-in is gonna be dramatically more successful than the other. And that's where I see most executives make mistakes, especially as they move up, because there's a, there was a Harvard Business Review article about a loss of empathy, right? You start thinking of people uh, beneath you as uh, a means to an end, and that's it. And so it's like, I know better. I have more experience than you, smarter than you. Um, but I, I always encourage people, when you're bringing a team together to execute, you, you should never underestimate buy-in. And, and the way you get buy-in is you, you interact with them. There was a, there was a book called uh, Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. He wrote the big short yeah. other books. And uh, he talked about a guy who was a very successful leader and manager. And he goes, I found a secret, found a secret to managing people so well. And they're like, well, what is it? What's the secret? Said, well, they have to think that you care about them and care about their career. And they're like, oh, wow. And he goes, and I found the way to do that. And he's like, oh, how do you make them think that? Well, you have to care about them. In their <laughs> That's how you make them think. That. And so, I, you know, yeah. I, the thing that I've taken everywhere is, is that, and it's helped with teams, is you, you do have to genuinely care about people. Um, and you got to be, but you have to be radically transparent and open with them too, right? We talk about SAG as a team. And we mm -hmm. say, listen, we love working together. We enjoy this. I'd rather be home playing with my kids though. So I'm not going to lie to you and say, man, this is just the greatest thing ever. And we're working here. We're going to stay till midnight. And I'm going to love it. It's like, we may have to do that, but let's be honest. We'd, we'd rather be with our families, you know? And so I yeah. think all of that leads into people being willing to go to bat for you because they know that you actually care about their ideas and their input and, and, and you're going to get that buy. And so that's the, that's one of the biggest takeaways that's helped me be successful in leading people. And again, it's very simple, but extremely difficult to do. Right. Um, and that's what I would say about it because most people don't want to do that. It takes time. It takes effort uh, to do that. So success of any project equals the quality of the product times the buy-in from the team. Man, yeah. just incredible. It reminds me of one of my favorite books by Angela Duckworth, uh, Grit. And if you haven't read that, it's a great one. But she says that Talent times effort equals skill, but skill times effort equals achievement. And so effort counts twice. And I've found that to be so true. And one of my early mentors just said to me, Logan, don't get your head over your feet and stay in the game. And I said, well, what the heck does that mean? You know, I'm running from here to there to over there. He said, be conservative, stay in the game. And as I have transacted close to $750 million of real estate now, I understand what he is saying and what he was saying, which was you have to be very emotionally stable through this process because people say, oh, commercial real estate is not a, is not a, you know, a 
uh, a sensitive thing like residential real estate. There's not as emotion as emotions. Yes, there is. I don't know what real estate they're talking about. If it's one REIT trading it to another REIT, maybe or something like that. That it's just you know analysts, you know, just trading deals back and forth, and that happens a lot. Um, that's fine. I guess there is that component to that. But when you're dealing with a mom and pop owner and you're going to buy their shopping center that they have owned for the last 15 years and you're taking something from them that has given them purpose, there is a lot of emotion in that transaction. And so I've been very successful understanding that, um, you know, you just got to stay in the game. You got to stay persistent. And he also said to me, real estate is like the bus. I said, real estate deals are like the bus. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, there's a new one every 15 minutes. And so just remember that. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, it doesn't feel like that maybe the last six to 12 months, but in, in long, in long term, there is something always else to, to uh, underwrite, to look into and, and evaluate. Don't uh, the best deal he ever did. He said, are the ones that I didn't do yeah, and yeah. Uh, walked away from. The analogy I like, which is similar to the bus, it's the Buffett analogy about wait for the fat pitch, right? So it's a baseball yes. analogy, right? That you want to get the one that is not on the outside corner, like over the plate, looks as big as a beach ball and you can knock out of the park. Because the difference is you get unlimited pitches. Like if you're the batter mm -hmm. at the plate, you don't get three strikes and you're out. You get, you can watch as many as you want go by. They're going to keep coming. Again, may not feel like that, but if you are consistently putting in effort, you know, it, it will come. But I, I agree, you know, there's, there's, you don't have to do the deal. And I think that's that's part of the emotion, right? When you, there are people yeah. that have to deploy capital and they're going to do it in a bad deal because they have to. You, know, they, you don't want to be in that position. Yeah. Okay. Well, one of my favorite kind of segments in we have about 10 or 15 minutes to kind of go through the next two is the predictions part. You know, it's been an interesting year of 2022. I mean, 2021, 2020, 2019. They were all interesting to me. Um, but this one has been very interesting because one of the biggest levers in, in real estate deals is interest rates because we are using debt and that has, you know, gone uh, through the roof in regards to, you know, the amount of, of increases we have seen. But as you position SAG for 2023 predictions or anything that you're watching closely to say, you know, hey, we're on pause until we see an exceptional deal. Are you being more opportunistic right now or or just in general, you know, are do we do you think that transactions are gonna come back, sellers are gonna capitulate and and buyers are gonna come back to to say, hey, we can pay these prices. But we'd love to hear your guys' kind of theories around, you know, how you're thinking about the market as a whole and, and what you're doing based off of that uh, thesis. Sure. No, that's I mean, it's good. I think that speaking to the interest rates really quickly, um, you know, the, the the Fed has two mandates and only two mandates. It's price stability and low unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, because of our demographics and labor participation, even with cutting jobs, unemployment is going to stay low, which means the Fed can keep raising rates. And so people that are, people that were saying there's going to be a pivot, they're going to cut, it's not, it's not happening because unemployment's not going to go up. Uh, yeah. you know, so I think you got to count on rates being at the current level or slightly higher for a little bit. So for us, the, what we look at is there's a really interesting spread. There's a really interesting chart that will show you the spread between average cap rates and a 10-year treasury, okay? So 10-year yeah. treasury just being a vehicle that we use to say, here's in general what interest rates look like, right? That that spread has like never been smaller than it is right now. And so for us, mm -hmm. we're, what do we predict will happen? I mean, it's, people are so short-term focused. It's like, yeah, a seller can sit on this price for three months. They don't have to sell. A lot of sellers have been making a lot of money. Uh, right. For, 
there's not a forced event. So for us, what I would say is people have compared this to 08, and there's a couple very important differences between what's happening now in 08 that I always want to point out to people. Okay, number one, banks are way, 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 way more healthy now than they were in 08. Super more healthy, right? They're just yeah, they're just way more healthy. They have more capital. Their balance sheets are better. In 08, the government was literally forcing banks to sell loan portfolios. Like you have to do this, right? So that's not going to happen. And then number two, people have a lot more money. There's a lot more money in the system, individual investors. And so I think that you're going to see the economy slowing. It already is to a degree, right? You can define it however you want. Uh, but I mean, our narrative is, is that we think deals will materialize, but they're going to be more off-market individual. I mean, we're getting out there trying to kind of pound the pavement to find things that you know, aren't necessarily uh, being done through a broker um, just because we love brokers. We love our brokers. I'll only say that. I'm not, I'm not anti-brokers, but I think that our prediction would be is that until cap rates become realistic in relation to interest rates, it's hard for us to pull the trigger on something. But there are like eight, nine, 10 cap deals out there. They may not be on CoStar, but sure. <laughs> they're, they're, they're out there. And so we, we don't think that there won't be deals. We think there'll be plenty of deals. It's just there's not going to be some ridiculous bargain. You know, we want to buy a good asset at a good price. We're not looking to get one over on someone. Um, you know, you can use the term opportunistic, whatever you want. But for us, you know, our, yeah. our narrative is, is that interest rates are going to be this way for a while. You may as well learn to live with it. Uh, that does eliminate some of our competition. Higher leverage or variable debt type people are getting hammered. But there's still plenty of competition. So what, what we would say is that we're going to keep, to your point about effort, we're going to keep doing what we're doing, which is getting out there, interacting with people, looking for those opportunities. And we, we're, again, we're, and, and the other thing too is that about this recession that makes it different is that because people aren't necessarily losing their jobs, Twitter and Facebook layoffs aside, um, you know, I'll get nervous when like people that are making stuff start laying people off. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen that. And so in reality, what's happening is people still have a job. They still have a place to live. Uh, there aren't as many variable mortgages. So we just don't see that there's going to be some economic disaster. It's going to be kind of painful. But people need to learn to live with higher interest rates. There have been periods right. where interest rates have been five plus for like 10 and 20 years. I mean, there's mm -hmm. a lot of young people. You're Neither, I don't know how old you are, but neither one of us are old. I don't know that either one of us is super young, but we're not old. Um, there's been time periods where interest rates have been high for a long time. So you, you got to learn to deal with it. And the way real estate works is like, make your deal work at five, six or 7%. Get a loan. If you really believe they're going to come way down, great. Don't do a life insurance loan. Do a traditional bank yeah. loan and refi. And if it right. works at 6% and rates go to four, that's just money in your pocket. So that, that's the way. That's right. Does that, does that make sense? That's the way we view the world. Right now. Yeah, I think our sim our, we have a very similar view. And look, I mean, 2022, we had big acquisition goals. We didn't get anywhere close to them, but we were still able to buy seven deals. And it was because we looked at 2,500 opportunities. And um, that's, a, that's a very small hit rate, right? But we found those opportunities that we felt very competent in. And so I think that, you know, if you're not set up to have the system of just digesting those deals on a regular basis, two things happen. One, you lose relationships like brokers or you're not building relationships with sellers. And two, by the time that, that the prices do get to the point that 
you feel you can get back into the game. You're trying to spin back up and and create investor demand if you are raising capital and and have to do everything. If you just stay you know focused and continue to do the work that you were doing, um, you get to look through the the windshield instead of the rearview mirror a little bit. All of the reports from CoStar and Yardi and everything else, those are all last quarters, last months. You know they're analyzing the data. Uh, you know, the only way you see forward is being active and continuing to do the work and uh, putting the work in. So I think we have a very similar philosophy um, in regards to that. And I, you know, I, I, I go both ways, you know, I have, I love to read, you know, you know, Ray Dalio and, and Howard Marks and, and Richard Duncan, and, and you get all these different perspectives. And what I have found is it's usually something in between all of those. Sure. And so you have to, you have to create your own, you know, methodology. And like you said, you got to make your deals work, you know, and one thing that I'm very excited about is we have, have zero loans coming, you know, due in the next two, three years, which is great. We, we put five year or 10 year fixed debt on every single deal that we own. And so we have no forced liquidity event like that um, in our portfolio. And I don't think we're going to be thinking about doing that um, anytime soon. And so uh, we stuck, that was one of our you know, philosophies though. Let's let's stick to this, and 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 we did, and now we're sitting in a in a good position with that. So, appreciate you sharing your feedback there. Okay, last question, David. What what inspires you? Why do you do what you do? I always love to understand the intrinsic motivation of individuals that I have on the show. So, if you could share that with us, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a uh, a lot of what I want to do is I I, I want to live with purpose. You know, we're, we're mm. all called to a greater purpose. Um, you know, for me, whatever I'm doing, um, you know, whether it's playing with my kids or looking at a real estate deal or taking out the trash, maybe not always taking out the trash, but, um, you know, I, I want to bring uh, purpose and energy to that, um, you know, and by doing that and, you know, interacting with others um, and just bringing my best to the table and expecting others to do the same, um, you know, that just that, that derives a lot of long-term uh, satisfaction for me, um, you know, so for, for what drives me, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I always tell people money is the result of uh, your effort, you know, if that's your mm -hmm. goal, uh, I want to generate a big pile of money, you're, you're probably going to have a hard time being successful. Um, so for me, um, certainly that still matters, you know, they, but uh, I think that it's, it's, it's about really uh, driving long-term value in what I'm doing and not taking shortcuts. And the, the story I'll tell is that for anyone who's a parent, I'll tell a quick story about my kid was singing in the church choir. Okay. And so he sang in the church choir, went to dinner with the grandparents afterwards. And he, he said, how did I do? And uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law said, and my son's name is Sutton. I said, Sutton, you just did awesome. That was great. And then I said, you know, you did okay. You still need to pay attention better to your director. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 I wouldn't call it great, but you did pretty good. Um, and he got, it hurt his feelings. He's only five years old. So he said, you know, dad, I feel like you don't love me when you say <laughs> stuff like that. And I said, you know, son, I, I do love you. Um, and you did better than last time. And I saw improvement and I'm happy about that, but I'm not going to tell you, um, you know, something that's not uh, real. And in that moment, you know, I'm being intentional about my parenting, you know, trying to pour into my son and not, not doing the easy thing that probably would bring greater short-term pleasure um, mm. by saying, yeah, you're awesome. You did great. And the next time he's uh, directing the music along with the uh, director, uh, again, doing this, you know, um, during the thing. So, but no, yeah. I, I think that it's, uh, 
you know, we all, we all have different things that drive us, but to me, it's, I think that you have to be intentional about what you're doing, um, you know, no matter what it is. And to your point about, you know, consuming something and wanting to learn, right. If you're watching TV, you want to learn. It's the, the most successful people I've seen are very intentional. Um, they may not always do the things that I do, but whatever they're doing, they can tell you why. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and it's, I think that the best analogy I heard was, we talk, everyone knows what spending money is and investing money is. We all know the difference, right, between those two. Someone said, are you thinking about spending time or investing time? And that was so powerful to me when they said that, because it's like, are you spending time or are you investing time? And I just, that to me was like, wow, that was a big, you don't, I like those sayings too, right? I have stuff that I put up everywhere that maybe annoys my wife, like your wife is annoying. <laughs> that one was powerful because it's like, am I investing time right now or am I just spending time right now? And wow. Well, thank you, David. You've shared so much with us today. I appreciate you sharing that story. As a parent of two young kids, I um, definitely have been trying to apply uh, the growth mindset, which is exactly what you were you are doing there, whether you've read Carol Dweck's book or not, that is, you know, hey, you know, you did a, you did a good job, but we can always continue to be better and, and look at what your son did the next time, right? That's really cool. Left me with some really great notes that I've taken here. I appreciate that. I know that uh, the listeners are going to find this valuable. If, if folks do want to follow you, David, and learn more about SAG and what you're doing and, and everything, what's the best way to, for them to either reach out or follow along? Yeah, I mean, you can you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily. It's just David K. Youngblood on LinkedIn. Uh, our website is sagknox.com. You can go to our website and learn more. But I'm easy to reach uh, via LinkedIn. It's probably the best way. Um, awesome. But I'm happy to connect with people and interact. You know, like I said, I approach any interaction as that hopefully I can provide some value and the other person can as well. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just uh, learning from others. And uh, there's a big enough economy and a big enough pie to where we can all... Uh, eat and, and be healthy and not so worried about not helping others. So it's a, it's, it's a good way to interact. But that's the best way to find me. Awesome. Thank you, David, for joining today, the Invest for the Win show. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.